Our text for today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 through 22. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, you judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then? That a, that a thing sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than he, are we? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this. We've just partaken of the elements. What a, what a great thing it is to know that we are sharers in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ and his work. Help us to better understand that. Be with Tom as he preaches to us today in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. I want you to imagine for a moment that you just sat down at a nice restaurant with a group of friends. And uh, less than a minute after the hostess has seated you, a waiter comes to the table and lays out plates of food all around the table. And the, the food bears no resemblance to what you and your friends had intended to order. Would you eat the food? No, you, you'd realize that that food doesn't match up with that table. Somebody did something wrong, right? In spiritual terms, the Corinthians were eating food that was not matched up with their purpose. They were sitting at the wrong table. And there are Christians today who are doing the same thing, and that's what this passage is about. I didn't actually plan to land on this passage on the same Sunday that we went back to passing the elements of the Lord's table, but I think it's marvelous that that happened because this passage is, is very much about that beautiful gift that Jesus gave to us. And it's about us doing it together, us partaking of the table of the Lord together. Our passage this morning is actually a forceful rebuke to Christians who have taken a seat at the wrong table and are eating the wrong food. But as is very often the case, in both Testaments of the Bible, physical food is a metaphor for something far more important. This passage is about what we share together when we gather with our fellow saints or when we gather together with unbelievers. And it's about who else is at the table that our physical eyes don't see. Here in the second half of chapter 10, Paul circles back to a matter that he already addressed in chapter 8, food sacrificed to idols. And once again, the issue that he's actually bringing into focus is of far greater importance than what we put in our stomachs. 
Back in chapter 6, Paul said, food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. But then without missing a beat in chapter 6, he made it clear that he was talking, actually talking about something much more important than what we eat. He said food is for the stomach, the stomach is for food, but God's going to do away with both of those, yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. And then the rest of that chapter (laughs) is about immorality. In fact, a few verses later, he issues a very concise, very urgent command to every believer. He says, flee immorality. Run away from it. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. In this morning's passage, Paul talks yet again about food that we put in our stomachs. But just as in chapter 6, he makes it clear that what's actually at stake is a much bigger matter. That becomes very obvious in the first thing that he says in verse 14 of chapter 10. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Flee from idolatry. The word therefore, of course, points back to what he's just been talking about. Paul just finished drawing the attention of the Corinthian saints to the idolatrous practices of the Israelites, our forerunners as the covenant community of God. In chapter 10, verse 7, he said, he gave a command, he said, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood stood up to play. Now the specific example of idolatry that he's talking about that's revealed there in the second half of verse 7, is the golden calf incident that we find recorded way back in Exodus chapter 32. After 40 days of meeting with Yahweh at the top of Mount Sinai and receiving the gracious law of God to deliver to the people, Moses came down from the mountain with the two tablets of the Ten Commandments written by the finger of God to give to the people of God only to discover that the Israelites were in the midst of a pagan sacrificial feast of their own right there at the foot of that same mountain. The mountain, by the way, upon which the glory of God was still visibly manifest in a cloud at the top of that mountain the whole time that Moses was up there. Their grand party involved drunkenness, gluttony, sexual immorality, and the worship of an image, an idol, in the form of a golden calf created by the hand of Aaron. In all respects, Israel's big party at Sinai more than 1,400 years before Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthian saints looked very much like the pagan sacrificial feasts that were regularly observed in the city of Corinth. In verse 14, Paul strengthens the force of that previous command to the Corinthian saints. He said, do not be idolaters. Now he says, therefore, my beloved, flee idolatry. And in case anyone doesn't know it, 
F-L-E-E does not mean the same thing as F-L-I-R-T. There is a vast difference between fleeing from something and seeing how close you can get to it. How cleverly you can flirt with it without getting into trouble. To flee means that you put as much distance between you and whatever it is you're fleeing from as possible and that you do so as quickly as possible. When God tells us to flee from something, we need to understand what that something is, right? Paul's command to us here is flee idolatry. And what follows that command (laughs) tells us that Paul already had the protest against that command by the Corinthians ringing in his ears. Paul, just because we attend the the pagan feasts like everybody else does, that doesn't mean we're practicing idolatry. We don't worship non-existent gods. We worship Christ. Just as in chapter 8, Paul agrees entirely that that the man-made gods that are worshipped at the pagan sacrificial feasts are nothing more than an illusion. Here in verse 19 of chapter 10, he says, What do I mean then, that a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? The implied answer here is the same as the explicit answer in chapter 8. No! Idols are nothing. But then he throws him a curveball. The problem here was that the Corinthians were oblivious to a very real threat that was all around them as they participated in pagan sacrificial feasts. Before Paul identifies that very real threat, he first reminds the saints of the table that every child of God has been called to enjoy. In verses 15 to 18, he says, he says I speak to, to you as to wise men. I think he's being a little generous there. You judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for all partake of one bread. Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? The table to which we as redeemed saints of God are called, is the Lord's table. Paul's talking about what we did in this room just a little while ago. On the last evening that Jesus spent together with his disciples before he went to the cross, he instituted sacred observance that we know as the Lord's table, or the Lord's supper. Some call it simply communion. Here at CBC, our time of worship together centers on the sacred observance of that of that lovingly instituted gift given to us by Jesus that reminds us continually of his atoning death in our place of his glorious return to, for which we are waiting and when we eat that bread and drink that cup we are looking forward to the day that's about to come when we will eat and drink it again together with Him in His kingdom at the marriage supper of the Lamb, we will be the bride of Christ. 
As Paul puts it here, the cup of blessing which we bless is a sharing in the blood of Christ. The bread which we break is a sharing in the body of Christ. And I want to make one little comment here. And, and if this feels like I'm picking nits, just recognize I'm not, I am not trying to criticize. I'm just trying to tweak a little, trying to get our attention about something. Sometimes our men come up and they present the Lord's table and they don't pray. They talk about it and then they present it. When he says, it's not the cup of blessing which we bless, a remembrance of the blood of Christ. Guys, we're supposed to bless that cup and we're supposed to thank God for that bread. We're supposed to express to God that we're grateful for the gift. That's what Jesus did on the night that he was betrayed. He thanked God before, those, before they partook of those elements. So, little tweak, just asking you guys, when you come up, when you present, pray, thank God for it. Just takes a minute. All right. Three times in verses 16 to 18, Paul uses the word sharing or sharers. The Greek word here is probably the first Greek word I ever heard mentioned in a sermon when I was a baby Christian where the preacher actually pointed out the Greek. It's the word koinonia. Most of us have heard that, that word many times. It speaks of sharing together with someone else in some experience or activity. It's not just about individually experiencing that activity. It is about sharing it together with someone else. And so the corporate aspect of that word is front and center. The meal that belongs to us as a gracious gift of God is a tangible, tasteable experience together with our brothers and sisters in Christ of the blessed relationship and fellowship that we now enjoy through faith in Jesus Christ. It's a celebration of relationship accomplished and of blessed communion secured forever. It is a remembrance of relationship with our triune God together with all of His redeemed people because, because of the event that we remember in it, which is the substitutionary death of Jesus in our place. We have been brought into personal union with Jesus Christ because of that one sacrifice for sin for all time. That's what we remember. And we look forward to what that sacrifice has secured. The ceremony that we call the Lord's table, beloved, is deeply personal to God. And God intends that it will be deeply personal to us. If it has become ritual to you so that it, it, it just feels like something that we have to do, spend some time in this passage. Spend some time in, in the Gospel accounts of the Lord's table. Spend some time in 1 Corinthians 11 that we'll get to next, uh, in a couple of weeks. And uh, make sure, brothers and sisters, that you're reckoning with what God intends to communicate to His people through this, this observance. Paul's going to have a lot to say in that next chapter, chapter 11, about the sanctity of the Lord's table that Jesus gave exclusively to His church. But here, in verses 19-22, to 22, Paul then proceeds to identify the very real threat that he's been really hinting at all throughout this chapter. And that threat is nothing as benign as food or even fake gods. That threat is a very real threat 
and for formidable enemy that we cannot afford to underestimate. Here are verses 19 to 22 again. Please listen carefully. What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. But I say that the things with which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers. That's that word koinonia again. I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do, do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than He, are we? The answer to that last question is no. Paul's, Paul's surprising point here is that when the Corinthian believers participated in, in these pagan sacrificial feasts that, that were really just part of the public life of the Corinthian, of the community in Corinth, it wasn't just other self-indulgent people sitting beside them at the table. It was also demons. And those demons, beloved, have an agenda. They're not just enjoying a meal. The, they, their agenda is the agenda of their master, the devil. They have a purpose in everything that occurs at such a gathering. Now we who live in the city of Dallas, the big city, here in the industrialized world of the 21st century, we're far, far too sophisticated in our thinking to concern ourselves with the activity of demons, right? We'll leave that to more gullible people. Brothers and sisters, if you and I consider ourselves too sophisticated to be vigilant against the activity of demons in our daily lives and in the life of our local flock, we're as foolish as a soldier who's playing video games on his Nintendo Switch with noise-canceling headphones covering his ears while the battle that he has been commissioned to prosecute is raging all around him. And we're every bit as vulnerable as that foolish soldier. You and I are called by God to be constantly aware that we wake up every day and we live behind enemy lines. That, by the way, is the theme of the youth camp this week. Behind enemy lines. And we're supposed to know who our enemy is and what his objectives are. In 1 Peter 5, Peter presents this stern warning to the children of God. He says, be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And then he, he finishes with this Beautiful promise. He says, after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. That the last part of that great passage tells us that we're not supposed to cower in fear because of this enemy. See, we who trust in Christ are on the winning side. 
Our destiny is settled. The outcome of the war is already determined. We're not supposed to be fearful, but we are supposed to be useful. And unless we want to be sidelined as agents of God in the world, we must be alert and at our battle stations. In Ephesians 6, Paul wrote to the children of God, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but our struggle is against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. You and I are supposed to understand that spiritual forces inhabit and empower earthly temptations. Let me say that again. You and I are supposed to understand that spiritual forces inhabit and empower earthly temptations. The enticements that we as the children of God encounter in this world are not passive. They are inhabited and energized by a ruthlessly aggressive enemy who cares absolutely nothing about fighting a fair fight. He and his foot soldiers love to make mortal threats look entirely harmless. And they are very good at doing so. And that means, brothers and sisters, when we dip a toe into the sandbox of demons, they're eagerly waiting to grab us by both legs and drag us all the way in. And, and the sandbox isn't full of sand, it's full of quicksand. If you and I foolishly dare to test the boundaries of earthly temptations, participating as much as possible in worldly delights while we're ignoring God's repeated warnings that those very delights are inhabited and empowered and made ever more deceptively enticing by the spiritual forces of wickedness that are all around us, then we are handing over the weapons of our warfare. We are handing over our armor to the enemy. Christians in our era uh, generally make some effort to steer clear of practices that, are, that we think are blatantly associated with demonic activity and the occult at least in the popular mindset that, that we think are associated with those things in the popular mindset. But, but if we think that because we don't play with Ouija boards or attend seances, that that's all the fortification that we need against the influence of demons in our daily lives, we're sitting ducks. We cannot be partakers together with others of the things that delight Christ and advance the kingdom of Christ at the same time that we are partaking of the things that delight the enemies of Christ and advance the kingdom of this world. We cannot be doing both. We have to choose a table. And we only get to choose one. In verse 22, Paul asks two additional questions. He says, or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than He, are we? The answer to that last question plays out in the entirety of the Bible. Go read the Old Testament. Read the prophetic books. And you'll see what happens when God's people think that they're stronger than He is. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? 
Here are the first two of the Ten Commandments. Listen for the jealousy of God for the hearts of His people and listen for what provokes that jealousy. Exodus 20, verses 1-6, through Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth, on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them for I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. That's Old Testament. Now listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 to 18. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship, koinonia, has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? I'm still pondering that verse 16. What agreement? Think about that. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. And do not touch what is unclean and I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me says the Lord Almighty. When we forget, when we forget how personal this is to, to the God who created all things, we miss the heart of God. We don't understand what this is about. God's jealousy is because, is because of His fierce love for His people. God is jealous for His children. God is jealous for His temple, His dwelling place in the midst of His people here on earth. Individually, that temple is every believer, as Paul explained back in 1 Corinthians 6. Corporately, that, that temple, that dwelling place of God on earth is His church. The ramifications of all of this uh, must not be given just a glancing thought. This demands prayerful, thoughtful consideration by every one of us on an ongoing basis. At the heart of Paul's exhortation here is what we do and say when we are together with other people. Not when we're alone. That's, that's a vitally important matter too, and the Bible has plenty to say about it. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about what we participate in together, what we share with other people. Sometimes we Christians have a tendency to use the word fellowship in ways other than what God means by the word. Christian fellowship, sharing together with, with one another who belong to Christ, has Christ as its object. It is He whom we share together. 
It is the truth concerning Him that we speak to each other. <laughs> the Christians, we talked a while back about the five truths concerning the truth, and we did in the young adults, we just talked about that again. This is a big deal these days. The world thinks truth is up for grabs. You know what truth is? As God defines it? Truth is Jesus. Truth is always about Christ. Truth is not just factuality. Not the way God defines it. In Ephesians 4, verses 11 to 25, you'll see that command, speak the truth in love. You see it over and over. The truth that it's talking about is the truth that makes the people of God grow up in all respects into our head who is Christ. The Lord's table is God's ordained expression, reminder of that sharing, that fellowship when we gather together to worship Him, that fellowship that was bought for us at the price of Jesus' sacrifice in our place. It is He whom we share together. Uh, the Lord's table should serve as a template for us for how we define Christian fellowship in other contexts. Because the Lord's table is about Christ. All of this should also make clear to us what Christian fellowship is not. Christian fellowship absolutely excludes sharing together with other people in the things that Paul told us steadfastly not to do earlier in this chapter. At the very beginning of the chapter, Paul pointed the Corinthians back to that corruption of godly fellowship that took place at the foot of Mount Sinai when they had their big pagan party. What they did was anything but what God intended the community of His people to experience. Look at 1 Corinthians 10, verses 6-11 through 11 again. There are a few points here that I want us to make sure we see. 1 Corinthians 10, 6-11, Now these things happened as examples for us, for us, that we should not crave evil things as they also craved, and do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us test the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. And then he says again, now these things happened to them for an example. And they were written for our instruction upon whom the end, ends of the ages have come. And I think most of us are pretty clear in this room, are pretty clear about the fact that when we gather together with other people, whether it be believers or unbelievers, it is not to indulge in drunkenness, gluttony, or sexual immorality, right? That doesn't mean that such things are no concern to Christians. Dallas is a partying city. And many professing believers, especially young ones, have been drawn into exactly the kind of self-indulgent partying that Paul and Peter sternly warn the children of God to flee from. If you flee from something, that means you don't flirt with it. It means you don't see 
What the, you're not testing to see how far you can get close, how close you can get to it. You don't care what the boundaries are. You're too far away from the boundaries for that to matter. The remaining two sins of the Israelites that Paul associates with idolatry at the beginning of this chapter are not quite as visible or high profile as the first three. Those last two are testing the Lord and grumbling. Paul connects those two behaviors just as surely to Israel's idolatrous unfaithfulness to God as he does drunkenness, gluttony, and sexual immorality. The demons whose enthusiastic work in this world is to oppose Christ at every turn are as much in their sandbox with those last two sins as they are with the first three. Testing the Lord means doing or saying things that bring His faithfulness into doubt. Grumbling means what we expect it means. It means complaining. Giving verbal expression to discontentedness. Dissatisfaction with our circumstance. For us who belong to Christ, grumbling and complaining always is equal to expressing dissatisfaction with the One who declares Himself to be our provider and protector. If we believe He controls all blessing and curse, which He declares, and we're not happy with our circumstance, who are we complaining against? Him. Testing God and grumbling are actually two sides of the same coin. We are, our grumbling, our complaining, brings the faithfulness of God into doubt. When you and I gather together with other people, what is it that we put on the table. Whether those other people are believers or unbelievers, do we participate with them in conversation that, that raises doubt about the faithfulness of God? Or do we steadfastly affirm the faithfulness of God? Do we grumble and complain about the same things that everyone around us is grumbling and complaining about? Or do we rejoice always and in everything declaring that it is now and forever well with our souls because of the kindness that God has lavished upon us and upon all who trust in Jesus. Do we lament together with other people about the state of our culture, our government, our educational institutions, the mainstream media, the criminal justice system, the economy, and the gatekeepers of social media? as if our well-being actually depended on any of those things? Or do we declare with confidence that neither our fear nor our trust is placed in earthly rulers, powers, or institutions? Do we affirm with the psalmist in Psalm 146 that our trust is not, quote, in mortal man in whom there is no salvation? but instead our hope is grounded in the God of Jacob. When we gather together with others, do we lament about the difficult people and relationships that God has put in our lives? When we gather with Christians, do we lament about the difficult people and relationships that God has put in our lives? Or do we speak about the great privilege that it is to act as ambassadors for Christ in those difficult relationships. 
And then what about our conversation about the church? Do we speak fearfully, as many Christians do, about the forces that are arrayed against Christ and His church in our modern era? It's one thing to acknowledge those threats. It's another thing to fear them and to speak fearfully about them. Instead, do we rejoice at our certainty of God's provision and protection for us as His beloved children? Do we rejoice over our perfect shepherd who prepares the table for us in the presence of our enemies? What a picture. A battle is raging and God sets up a table in the middle of the battlefield and He sits down and has a meal with us. Guys, that's our daily reality in Christ. Do we rejoice that our Master assures us that even the gates of hell will not prevail against the church of Jesus Christ? When we gather together with other believers, do we lament endlessly over the state of the church? Or do we rejoice that we have a perfect shepherd who knows his sheep and who leads us lovingly in the paths of righteousness for the sake of his own name? Why is it that we talk sometimes to each other as if the church is just gone? It's just lost. Guys, that's not going to happen. Yes, we're supposed to be mindful of our failures. We are supposed to confess our sins. But we're not supposed to get buried under this burden of doubt and fear and hopelessness as if we don't have a good shepherd. Guys, we have a perfect shepherd. He knows exactly what he's doing with his church all the time. We have cause to rejoice always. In a group this size, it's inevitable that some people are probably thinking, well, those just aren't realistic expectations. If we don't participate in conversations about those kinds of things, and we're always just talking about the faithfulness of God, nobody's going to ever invite us to anything. Especially not unbelievers. Guys, this is not a call to be paranoid or legalistic. It's a call to be intentional, deliberate, even strategic about what we put on the table when we are gathered together with other people. It's about how we handle our interactions with others, both believers and unbelievers. Genuine, transparent Christianity means that we don't pretend to one another or to this world that we never have fears or struggles in this life or that we never have complaints even against God. But if you read the Lamentation Psalms, and in fact, if you read Paul's own detail of the excruciating trouble that he suffered for, for serving Christ in 2 Corinthians 11, you'll see over and over and over in the Bible that the end point of the lament of every child of God is rejoicing in the faithfulness of God. I love 2 Corinthians 1. Paul says there's the time when he and his co-workers despaired even of life. And then you keep reading, it says, that we might trust the God who raises the dead. The end point for God's people when we do have complaints and lamentation is that we come back and we look again. We come back to the Word of God. We remind each other of what's true. And in the end, we rejoice. We rejoice. I love, you know, Tim Keller says that the Christian's joy is like a buoy. You push it down. As soon as you let go, it comes back up. We should be transparent and relentlessly honest about what it's like to do life in the midst of the refiner's furnace. 
but we must be just as relentless in declaring the faithfulness of God and the magnificence of our hope in Him. Guys, I can do anything if I know that the end of it is what God has promised. I can endure anything. That's what hope does in the here and now. You and I exist on earth to make Jesus Christ known and honored. We are dependent agents. We are representatives of someone else. Agents don't serve themselves. They serve the one that they rep represent. And the one we represent is Jesus. John the Baptist didn't say, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Poor me, I'm in the wilderness. You and I have a calling and a commission from the living God. We are to cry out as a voice calling in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, the King and Savior of all mankind has come and we know who He is. And we want you to know too. It would be a convenient dodge for us to conclude that the best way to avoid being enticed by this world is simply to avoid spending much time with unbelievers. Some Christians seem to embrace that strategy. But that is most assuredly not what Paul is exhorting Christians to do. A little later in this same chapter, we'll look at next week, Paul will talk about what should happen when Christians share a table with unbelievers. The principle applies whether it's a literal dining table or any other kind of gathering. And, and guys, that's not supposed to be a rare event. Christians gathering together with non-Christians is not supposed to be a rare event. Now, I'm talking to myself here too, of course. Jesus did quite a lot of that, right? Of getting together with people that didn't yet know him and some, some of whom were quite antagonistic toward him. Indeed, one of the things about the life of Jesus that gave the Jewish religious leaders the most heartburn was that he very regularly spent time with and shared meals with tax gatherers and sinners like us. The same should be true of us. If it's not, then we need to get out more. Or perhaps we need to bring in more. We need to have houses that are open. Uh, Rosaria Butterfield's book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, is a great read. I recommend it. The problem, beloved, arises when our words and actions serve the same agenda as the words and actions of the unbelievers with whom we are gathered. Our association with those who are of the darkness can never ever have the objective of fitting in with them. We don't fit in with them. And that doesn't mean that you and I have to try to be peculiar. <laughs> it also means that we should not try not to be. For all the reasons that Paul laid out for us in the first two chapters of this letter, we're already peculiar, guys. The wisdom of the world is foolishness to God and the wisdom of God is foolishness to the world. The word of the cross that we bear, the world hates it. They think we're crazy. We don't have to try to be peculiar. The word of the cross that we bear and the resurrected Christ to whom we bear to this world are as foreign to this world as foreign gifts. If we make that word and that person hard for unbelievers to hear from us and see in us because we're trying not to be weird, we've bailed out on our reason for being on this earth. 
were already weird. In the Gospel accounts, when Jesus sat at a... Think about this for a minute. In the Gospels, when Jesus sat down at a table with unbelievers, whether they were respected Jewish religious leaders or despised tax gatherers, how many of them do you think ever left that table with their assumptions and beliefs about God and about Jesus having not been challenged? I, I submit the answer to that is never. Nobody ever sat down at a table with Jesus without having his assumptions about God and Christ challenged deeply. But challenging the assumptions and beliefs of unbelievers is very different than offending unbelievers over things that are not Christ. And that is what we will look at next week in the remaining part of this chapter. Pray with me. Dear Father, we desire to be excellent ambassadors for Christ in this world that so desperately needs Him. Make us faithful, Lord, to be very active in the world, but not of the world. Make us faithful to remind one another to live strategically, vigilantly, to invest in people, and to be mindful that the one whom we are to invite to every table is our Master and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in His precious name that we pray. Amen.